could you please turn with me to Psalm 98? Psalm 98. Reading out of the English Standard Version. Um, This Christmas Eve, it makes uh, complete sense for us to study this specific uh, part of God's Word. And we are, we are looking at a psalm that has, uh, for, for hundreds of years, uh, been uh, preached in the lead-up to Christmas. And one of the most well-known songs of Christmas is Joy to the World. We all know it. We've all heard it. And it is written by Isaac Watts, and it is based on Psalm 98. And we are going to sing uh, basically the whole version of it. We, The popular version of Joy to the World contains only four stanzas or four verses. Um, and those four verses are based on the last like two verses of Psalm 98. So you wouldn't make the connection that this is a song about Psalm 98, but when you see the full version, you see that he keeps uh, the entire text of Psalm 98. So this is not just a nice, friendly song, Joy to the World, that you, you know, like Jingle Bells or something like this. This really is a a psalm that has been put into uh, a song in the English language. And so that is this psalm's theme. Joy to the world. It is a a psalm about the the saving power of God. And what a uh, completely uh, appropriate subject to fill our minds with this season. Let's read uh, God's word. Psalm 98. A psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord, a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever, Isaiah tells us. Psalm 98 is probably written by David. And it is one of seven psalms in scripture that were used by the people of Israel to celebrate God as king. They're specifically called enthronement psalms. Okay, so 47, 93, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. They're all together there. 
And they're called enthronement psalms, not royal psalms. Royal psalms are like Psalm 2, for example, which celebrate the king is king. All right? So David, the, the earthly king on the throne. But this is one of those psalms that speaks about God as the ultimate king over his people. And as we get back into uh, studying psalms, this is our second year uh, doing this over uh, the summer. We must always read the Psalms in their original context. We must always read them to the intended audience. And then, once we have done that, we consider how they point ahead in the plan of God's redemption. Psalm 98 is an interesting one because even in uh, Jewish literature, for example, the Targum, which was an Aramaic commentary on the Old Testament, it calls this psalm a prophecy. It calls it a prophetic psalm about the future saving work of God. Numerous Jewish scholars and well-known ones uh, in that world, Aben Ezra and guys like that, believed that this was primarily a psalm pointing forward to the reign of the Messiah, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish king, and also the bringing in of the Gentile nations. So we've been going through Acts this year. Uh, the events of Acts are really uh, prophesied in this psalm here. So to summarize, Psalm 98, we can say it is a psalm where the people of God are exhorted to, to look back at God's great deeds, anticipate the coming of their king in the future, and to sing praise to him. Quite simple. Look back, look forward, praise God. Firstly, we must think, what does this mean to Israel? The people were told to sing to the Lord a new song. A new song. It doesn't list the new song for you to sing. It just says, sing to the Lord a new song. And it says that the saving work of God is a new song. A radically different Song has appeared in human history. This is what it is saying. Last week we saw in Psalm 74 that, that there is a, a, a need for salvation to come to humankind because of our complete fall into sin. It has brought rebellion. It has brought darkness. It has brought chaos. It has brought fractured relationships and fractured lives. There is disorder. If you read the holiday newspapers for all our attempts at making this a, a joyful and a wonderful time, look to page two, look to page three. There is still brokenness around. Maybe you feel that yourself. Sin is still present and causing disruption. One thing we do know about Scripture is that if God is holy and just, He must deal with it. He must deal with it if He is good. But the problem with this is that left to ourselves, we are without hope. That's just a, it's a simple fact. Israel were their own worst enemies. They just, they, they simply were. And many of us will say the same about ourselves. I certainly will. 
for all anyone has ever said and done to me, I have been certainly my own worst enemy. I always cringe when I hear people say, look within yourself for the answer. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I'm like, if I'm in a problem, it's usually because I've put myself there, right? I'm the solution. It's like forgetting how I got there in the first place. Certainly this was so with Israel. They were their own worst enemies. And simply... Maybe you're not a singing person, but let me explain this. We do not sing joyful songs when we are without hope. We do not have praise and passion in our hearts when times are bleak. But this psalm, it, it, it reminds me of that glorious phrase in Ephesians 2. But God. But God. He has done marvelous things, the psalmist tells us. God acts. Isaiah would take this, this theme here in Psalm 98 and, 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 and open it up some more. Isaiah 59, 16 says, The Lord looked if this, there were any to help and wondered that there was no intercessor, no mediator. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation, and his righteousness sustained him. This psalm is undoubtedly pointing back to the Exodus. The strong arm of God revealed. God brought two million Israelites out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, across the wilderness, and into the promised land of Canaan. He took them out of slavery and brought them to a place of freedom. Why would they sing about that? They would sing because they didn't do it themselves. It was God who did it. God has shown his strong arm in saving Israel. God sent plagues to overcome the Pharaoh, okay, who was deemed a god himself. And remember when they came out of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's armies, having changed his mind, Pharaoh bearing down upon them. Two million people, many women and children and livestock. This is not a quick army that can just scamper out of the way ready to be broken and taken back into slavery, many of them killed. What happens next? The sea opens up and they walk through on dry ground. God has shown his strong arm to Israel on hearing that she will bear the Savior near the end of Luke chapter 1. Mary said, He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. The saving work of God, the wondrous deed that he has done, the strong arm that he has shown, 
And not because of the goodness, the inherent goodness of the people he saves, or their good works in any way, shape, or form, but his own grace and mercy. Why does God save his people? Because he is gracious and merciful. So the salvation that is being sung about here in Psalm 98 is by its very, uh, its very act, the nature of the intrusion of God into the world. That's what salvation is. The intrusion of God into the world. An extraordinary work. Not an ordinary part of life, but something miraculous. The psalmist says that the Lord has revealed his righteousness in the eyes of the nations. He has shown his salvation. He has shown that Israel being kept in slavery by the Egyptians was wrong. It was unjust. He shows his righteousness by leading his people out of it. It was wrong. It was sinful. The psalmist says he has made his salvation known to the nations. We could say that that means, for the original hearers, that word of God bringing two million Israelites out of Egypt has been told to the surrounding people. The Midianites, the Canaanites, all those kind of people. Everyone has been told about this great God in Israel. So this is absolutely about God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt and that news of salvation spreading to the surrounding nations. But look at it. Look at look at verse the end of verse three. Look at the beginning of verse four. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Does God's work in with Israel in Egypt, does that exhaust Psalm 98? Does it exhaust it? Is, it? is that it? That the nations, the Gentiles have been told that God saved his people, the Israelites? Does that exhaust the psalm? This word here, this phrase, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Is that it? No. The psalm absolutely is prophetic. It points forward from this time. God's strong arm is revealed in a greater way. And this is the, the, the paradox, the, the, the miracle of Christmas. God's arm is shown in a greater way than bringing his people out of Egypt and sending his son, Jesus Christ. That child in a manger is a demonstration of the power of God and the wisdom of God. It absolutely is a picture of strength in weakness. That's a, a wonderful thing. That's the, the, the catalyst for this new song that the people are called to sing. One commentator says, 
in the wonderful things of the incarnation, the atonement on the cross, the resurrection from the dead, God's arm invades the process of human destiny with the outpouring of Christ's own life. Jesus Christ's entire life is a picture of the strong arm of God working, working in human destiny. Jesus Christ himself is good news, and he is not good news because of some new theory of living, some new set of moral laws that we're called to to live about, some new 12-step program, whatever it is. It is Jesus Christ is good news because it is the radical intrusion of God into our plight. Jesus Christ is good news because he came to seek and to save the lost. Let's remind ourselves, who are the lost? Out there? No, right here, starting with ourselves. I could go even further. The baby in the manger is the holy flexing of God's muscles. And if we don't think that is impressive... We don't understand how God works. He does it with the most feeble looking thing. He does it with a baby that needs to be fed and changed. Jesus Christ is a a king for the dark world. Light and sight for blind people. Hope in a hopeless place. And this is why the psalmist just calls for singing. Make a joyful noise, all the earth, it says in verse 4. All the earth make a joyful noise. We must understand this is pointing to Christ. Why would the nations praise God for what he did for Israel back in the Old Testament? They would not. It must be pointing forward because that salvation is to increase and it is to go out and that message of the gospel is to go from Israel to the nations so much so that here we are in Palmerston North. Can we agree? We're right at the ends of the earth. Americans don't even know where we are. But we're here because God has done wonderful things in Christ. All this passion here in this, the second half of the psalm, all this thankfulness, all these calls to worship and sing with abandon, they come from the fact that the psalmist has seen and he comprehends the saving work of God and he is deeply moved by this. I am all about right theology. I am all about right doctrine. It is important. It is not something esoteric. We must know God. We must know him rightly. We must, we've been given an enormous book of his word. We must see what it says. We must summarize it for ourselves. We must teach it to children. We must teach it to older people. We must teach it to ourselves. We must teach it to lost people. But doctrine exists primarily for devotion, does it not? 
that God might be worshipped and worshipped correctly, according to the way he has said. Ligon Duncan loved that, man. He says, as New Covenant believers, it is important for us to rehearse God's past mercies to us, or we will become unthankful, ungrateful people, and we will not be able to endure the times when God's mercies are not so obvious to us, and those times always come in life. That's true. We must know who God is. We must know what He has done. We must remind ourselves of that. And the purpose for that is so that we might be grateful for Him, be content and worship, and have hope for the future. One of the great reasons why we sin so frequently is because our hearts are unthankful for what God has given us now and done for us in the past and promised to do in the future. We must be reminded daily, weekly of God's faithfulness and his goodness and his mercy to us or we are prone to forget and our hearts grow cold. And this is why week in and week out, it's the only way I know how to do it out of the scriptures. Week in, week out, we must gather for worship. We must behold Christ, we must transfix our gaze on that which is greater than ourselves and our affections away from uh, our own selves onto that which is greater, Christ and his gospel. We start our weeks from a place of rest, being reminded that it is finished and Jesus has paid it all. Now go, go love your neighbor, go love God, go work your job or, or whatever it is that you do. And we go into the world then, a people freed by the mighty arm of God to now live under his rule and reign. I am prone to forget. I am prone to forget to read my Bible myself sometimes. I am often shocked at, at times where I just forget to pray. We must be reminded, we must remind each other of what God has done. The gospel is good news, it is great news, it is grace news to us. Such good news that we see at the end of the psalm, it says the sea roaring, rivers clapping their hands. Have you... Just interpret that literally. Hills shouting out. In, those are inanimate objects, just so you know. Creation exulting. It shows how much praise is deserved by God. Nothing is capable of worshipping God for his infinite worth and wonderful deeds demonstrated to us chiefly in his Son. Nothing is capable. And therefore even inanimate things can go forth in praise. This is the part then at the end that we must really think about. Why else is there great joy in this world? Why should we have joy? 
look at the end there. It says, look how the psalm finishes. The Lord, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He comes to judge. That's why we should have joy. Is the psalmist saying that we are to sing for joy because God is coming to judge? If you're like most of us, when you hear that word, God is coming to judge, you think of a court case, do you not? You think of a trial. Why would that make you happy? Huh? Right? You're being called to have great joy, inexpressible joy, because God is coming to judge the world with righteousness. The only way it would possibly give you joy, it would possibly give you happiness, is if you've been saved from that judgment. Fair enough? Otherwise, it's the worst news possible. The word here, judge, is not just specifically a court case. That's how we understand it. It is specifically the rule of God. The judges, the ruler. The Old Testament book, the judges. They weren't just having court cases. They were rulers, sort of, sort of kings. This final verse here in the psalm is an announcement of the final victory of God in Christ and that he wins and the Savior comes to judge and rule over his kingdom. Let's hear these words from Myers Hill and Paul on Myers Hill in Acts 17. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that this will take place. That Psalm 98 will be fulfilled. The judge came once to save, then he shall judge. So this psalm is about God's work in Egypt and saving his people of Israel. But it is also about the first coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ. All the great saving works of God encapsulated. This Jesus Christ was born humbly in Bethlehem. The baby who in his mother's arms slept was by his own power upholding the universe. He never owned property, yet he created all the property in the world. When Jesus died, he died rejected and despised. He was wrapped in burial cloths and placed in a borrowed tomb. He came into the world humbly and he left arguably even more humbly. But we are told he came once to save and then 
wonderful words of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. No longer humility, but enthronement. Rule. He's earned that throne through his incarnation and his life, his death and his resurrection. I said to you when we started that the psalm calls for a new song to be sung. Often the Old Testament scriptures will say, sing to the Lord a new song. But it never tells you what that song is. Have you heard that? Have you seen that? Have you thought of that? never tells you what the song you're supposed to sing is. It just says, sing a new song. I want us to close by reading that song. I couldn't believe I didn't know this. Numerous commentators pointed it out. The words of Revelation 5 are that new song. And I want us to, to read them. A picture from the throne room of heaven. Revelation chapter 5, we'll read the whole, the whole text. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels. Number, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's word.